and we passed through the cavern of rats, and we passed through the path of boiling steam, and we passed through the country of the blind, and we passed through the slough of despond, and we passed through the veil of tears, and we came finally to the ice caverns. We are reading old genres and pulp fiction for the very first time. Each month, we pick a new theme. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connections between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. Last month, we wrapped up dystopian books, and now we are beginning post-apocalyptic month. First, we are reading I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. Does the author of the post-apocalypse choose to end on a note of hope or despair? What kind of vision of humanity or inhumanity does the author give us when civilization falls away? How did we end up in this situation anyway? I'm John, and I'm interested in the nature of the supercomputer. I'm Bob, and this week I'm interested in individual punishments. I'm Zach, and this week I'm interested in the structure of the plot. So in this story, we have five people trapped in a kind of underground cavern or torture chamber, and they're overseen by the enraged supercomputer AM, or AM. I thought the structure of this plot was kind of interesting. We're, we're plopped down in the middle of things. We see a gruesome scene where they come across a corpse, or I guess a facsimile of a corpse, that is actually of one of their companions standing there with them. And then another of the companions has a hallucination that there's canned foods in the ice caverns located hundreds of miles away. And so they set off. And then in the middle of their journey, they stop and tell campfire stories about the origin of Am, who they were before the world ended. And then finally, after a torturous journey, they arrive and find the canned goods, but they have no can opener. Our hero then kills his comrades and is forced into a singular torturous eternity with only himself and the supercomputer being the only ones left alive. So I'm thinking about the structure here. We start in the middle and then after a certain period of time, it moves back and gives us the beginning of the story. And then finally it jumps forward and concludes at the end. And now that I think about it, this is actually the same overall structure that Harlan Ellison used in the previous text we read by him. Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. So you're saying that this could be a lazy info dump, this campfire story section where we're getting the past, how we got to our situation. I mean, I wouldn't call it lazy at all, especially because the form of the short story is so concise that the author really needs to find ways to get as much information across to the reader as possible. Having characters, you know, share stories of how they got there, it seems to me as good a way as any. Plus, it gives us a chance to really understand who these characters are, develop their characterization. They tell the story in order to amuse Benny, the professor turned chimpanzee, like pacifying a kid. It's quite a unique info dump in this sense, and effective because it also builds the social dynamic of the group of characters. They're almost like parents to this unfortunate Benny who's been turned into an ape. He's like a kid that everyone looks looks after like they're his parents and they, you know, tell him stories in order to keep him amused. When we're talking about why certain plot points happen, I think it might be useful to distinguish between in-universe explanations and craft explanations. 
So the in-universe explanation would be that Benny is a loose cannon, and he needs to be soothed after his eyes have been burned out by a laser. But the craft explanation would be that, Benny or not, everything that Ellison writes is ultimately directed towards the reader. So in a storytelling sense, we start out in the middle of their hellish world, a world of death, illusions, discarded computer parts, and hunger. But to go from here straight to the conclusion, I think would be rather unsatisfying. For Ellison, these time jumps are the formal structure of the book, and they're what make the narration compelling. Certainly, they make the narration com- compelling, but also they really illustrate the theme of the story as well, this theme of being stuck in time. So it seems like the, the structure or the formal aspect of the story really goes hand in hand with the, the narrative and the theme or like the matter of what's going on here. So I think they form quite a good cohesive whole. This kind of reminds me of something I heard about one time in architecture. So in architecture, two famous architects in the 60s, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, coined two terms to describe two different kinds of buildings. They used the example of a building in New York called Big Duck, which is a building shaped inside and out, I believe, like a big duck, believe it or not, uh, which was built for a duck farmer in order for him to sell his duck eggs from it. So the form... And the the subject matter are intrinsically linked in every single element. It's a building for selling duck eggs shaped like a duck. And they compared this kind of building or distinguished this kind of building from the other kind of common building that you get in architecture, which they called a decorated shed, in which the form says nothing really about what happens inside and it requires some kind of further signage or further decoration in order to indicate the function of the building. So maybe the sign outside will say hospital, but if you didn't see the sign outside, you would have no idea it was a hospital versus a hospital being shaped just like a patient's bed <laughs> and, and like a doctor uh, stood over a bed in uh, giant geometric form or something something like this. I'm thinking of the banana stand in Arrested Development versus like a grocery store. Oh, the banana stand. Yeah, I think the banana stand would definitely be a good example of a duck. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I bring this up is I wonder if Ellison's story can be seen in this dynamic. Like, do we see Ellison's story as kind of like a duck where the, the form of this kind of way of moving through time where you start in the middle and then you go back to the beginning, then you work through to the end. And it's kind of like unclear how long has passed during, you know, in the space of the story. Combined with the fact that the theme of the story is being stuck in a supercomputer, which distorts your view of time. Does that make Ellison's story a kind of duck in this sense? I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it duck or is it a shed? Besides this story, what is an example of a duck story? Well, thinking back to what we've read, I'm trying to think of stories where the form is really conveying the message just as much, if not more so, than the content. Recently, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas, I would consider that to be a duck, in the sense that the way that the author constructs the plot by having the reader actually do the world constructing themselves. So the author says, oh, Omalas could be like this, or it could be like that. Reader, you decide. So in that sense, the reader bears some responsibility for the world that is created. And that responsibility is then turned around into guilt for the reader for creating this monstrous landscape. Or even thinking of Thomas More's Utopia. 
Utopia isn't told straight, as in it's not from Moore speaking directly to the reader about this utopian place. Instead, it's given as a kind of tall tale told between two characters. We can't necessarily believe that Utopia exists. I mean, the name of the city is translated to nowhere. But our narrator character is continually questioning whether it does or does not. And the narrator doesn't even seem to really buy into Utopia or endorse Utopia. So in these two stories, the way that the the plot and the structure is formed helps to create the primary message. Sure, sure. And that's the duck. Those are two ducks that we've read. That's a duck. A duck's a duck. Now what's the phrase? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. There you go. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. So ducks, if we're on this duck beat, this duck bill, our mystery stories, ducks, was our Agatha Christie story, Mysterious Affair at Styles. Is that a duck? Because in that story, we're kept in a mystery as we read a mystery, and we act as the detectives because we're given the same bits of information at the same time the detective is. So... Are these detective stories ducks or decorated sheds? I feel like although the form of the mystery, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a mystery story telling about a mystery. It could be an example in that sense. But at the same time, the mystery story formula is itself kind of shed. And each time, it's just kind of like a different episode. You know, every time you have the same Poirot and it's just different characters, different scenery added each time. So the form of the story and the particular context and the particular subject matter have no intrinsic connection in most cases. Yeah, I would never deny that Agatha Christie writes with winged words, but... Mm, I'm following the crumbs to this... Never mind. (laughs) Can't make a pun out of that. But the form is following the content in these mystery stories... So I think mystery in general is doing that. Could we say that mystery as a genre is a duck? Well, I think the fact that you say that there's the same general plot formula for every mystery makes it kind of a a mystery shed. And I feel like what you're getting at is the question of when does the innovation become the formula? Because at some point very early on, the mystery was an innovation. But I think that now I think of mystery as a formula, as a genre. You know, if you make a hundred duck-shaped buildings selling duck eggs, (laughs) are none of them then ducks? Do you out-duck the duck? (laughs) If you get your ducks in a row, do they all cease to be ducks? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Well, okay, so I do think that this is a shed story, just in the sense of Ellison is reusing the same general plot construction from another short story that he's written. And it makes me feel like if you gave me half a dozen plot pitches, then I could give you half a dozen short stories using this same construction. However, this story does have some unresolved tension that makes it more than merely a formal exercise. And I'm talking about what happens in the plot to the character who actually does the narration? Who is the person vocalizing to us? Because the effect of what happens to him really affects our understanding of the plot. So at the very end of the story, functioning as a kind of epilogue, the narrator has been turned into some kind of inhuman monster. Here's a quote. I am a great soft jelly thing, 
smoothly rounded, with no mouth, with pulsing white holes filled by fog where my eyes used to be, rubbery appendages that were once my arms, bulks rounding down into legless humps of soft, slippery matter. I leave a moist trail when I move. So this is the time when he can no longer tell how much time has really passed. He's clearly disoriented. I think as readers, this raises questions about where we are supposed to understand this narrator is speaking from. Are we hearing the story from the final narrator, like relating his memories back to us? Or are we following along as we go? Are we simultaneous with each plot development? And it's these ambiguities that, for me, build interest and keep me searching in the story. It makes it more interesting than a simple plot by numbers. The narrative structure really gives us this sense of being surrounded on both sides, like past and future by these just endless horizons of torment. So from a thematic perspective, I definitely think it's, even though maybe it's not a duck, it definitely still conveys this overall mood. I want to get a face tattoo that says endless horizons of torment. And I love the the tormenting punishments that AM or AM, our supercomputer, gives each one of our characters. There's Benny the genius who is turned into an idiot ape, Gorister the social activist who becomes a shoulder shrugger, and then Ted, you know, he already has that name, which sucks enough, and he's our narrator, and he's turned into a pile of goo dragging itself around. So how did you feel about these punishments as compared with Harlequin's punishment dealt out by the TikTok man? Well, compared to this, the Harlequin gets off really easy. He is destroyed. Here it's even worse. The torment of not being able to die or be destroyed, no matter how much you want to be destroyed. There's a quote here that really expresses his predicament. Am would never let us go. We were his belly slaves. We were all he had to do with his forever time. We would be forever with him, with the cavern-filling bulk of the creature machine, with the all-mind, soulless world he had become. He was earth, and we were the fruits of that earth. And though he had eaten us, he would never digest us. We could not die. We had tried it. We had attempted suicide. Oh, one or two of us had. But Am had stopped us. The machine here is very different from the TikTok man, as you can see, and also just much, much worse. The TikTok man will destroy you. Am will do anything but destroy you. Right, but I do think that the punishment is fundamentally a different character. In Repent Harlequin, the punishment is clearly for breaking the law. Now, I mean, we can easily diagnose whether the law is just or not, but we can see a causal relationship between breaking the law and the punishment for breaking it. But I have no mouth. It's not even punishments for for what we're talking about here. There are no laws broken. Really, what we're seeing is a kind of violent resentment. Quote, the machine hated us as no sentient creature had ever hated before, and we were helpless. It also became hideously clear. If there was a sweet Jesus, and if there was a God, the God was Am. But what we're talking about isn't even like the inverse of a biblical God, because the Old Testament God punishes when people disobeys his laws and commandments. But this God, as he calls it, is more so just an eternal, endless wrath. And he's not angry at any object so much as just angry for being born. And maybe he's 
even amusing himself in its loneliness? I'm not sure. Yeah, loneliness, angry at being born. These are really interesting things for a super intelligence. Is this a Sabrina, the gym leader of Saffron City predicament, you know, where people are her toys? No one's going to get that reference except for me. But I also wonder if it's, you know, torturing just it's its only creativity. It's its only way to express itself. There's a further quote where it says, Am could not wander. Am could not wonder. Am could not belong. He could merely be, end quote. And Ellison says he tortured the last five people on Earth to remind him how much he should hate man, I guess, because he's this giant, immobile network. Am is, quote, immortal, trapped, subject to any torment he could devise for us from the limitless miracles at his command, end quote. Bob, I want you to know that I'm 100% with you on this Sabrina and Saffron City reference. But getting back to the quote, mobility is a continual theme in this story. The the immobility of the machine, it's alive, but it's so large that it seems to have swallowed up much of the earth. But there's also the immobility of the survivors who can travel a hundred miles, but they can never actually leave the belly of the machine. And then there's the immobility of the narrator, who by the end has become this horrible jellyfish, unable to do anything but slide around, and who, of course, has no mouth and must scream. There is a funny sense of irony with the machine. Man made the machine because the machine could do things that man could not. And now the machine keeps man alive because man can do things the machine cannot do. The humans are trapped in the machine and definitely very immobile, but still they have the capacity, as Bob mentioned, to wonder and to wander. And the machine seems to find comfort or even delight in that. At the end, however, the machine turns man into himself, essentially. This jelly blob man thing that Ted becomes is just as limited and immobile as the machine. And it destroys, essentially, by doing this, the only thing that brought the machine any pleasure, the unpredictability and mobility of the humans that he had trapped. So I think the story is almost like a tragedy here for the the machine. He's created and he didn't want to be created. And then he only goes to make his own life more and more miserable by trying to make it bearable. He's kind of like almost like Frankenstein. So is the machine actually worse off than the people that he's torturing? Somehow, is super intelligence a worse condition than blobitude? There's another quote where it says, We were all am had to do with his forever time, end quote. And even though Ted is Am's last toy, Am is going to do everything it can to make Ted's life as awful as possible. And it makes me think of the idea of Clippy, the omnipotent operating system programmed to turn all matter into paper clips. Am is turning all life into suffering. Wait, Clippy? You mean a little pop-up in Microsoft Word? Is that another thing from Toy Story 4? You're thinking of Forky, but yes, I think it is the Microsoft Word Clippy, or it's based on this idea of Clippy. Nick Bostrom and those super-intelligence guys, they've got a thought experiment where a, a super-intelligence, quote, whose sole goal is something completely arbitrary, i.e. making paperclips, 
Now, continuing the quote, with the consequence that it starts transforming first all of Earth and then increasing portions of space into paperclip manufacturing facilities, end quote. This idea reminds me of Am, the superintelligence in Ellison's story, because while this clippy thought experiment, it might sound ridiculous, it's a little off-brand, paranoia, but who's to say that the vengeful torturer god who turns all life into suffering is more likely than this paperclip god? I love the idea of unintended consequences and these completely arbitrary sequences of events that lead to absolute disasters. I thought this thought experiment with Clippy actually recalls the actual genesis that, that we get in this book. Quote, The Cold War started and became World War III and just kept going. It became a big war, a very complex war, so they needed the computers to handle it. They sank the first shafts and began building AM. There was a Chinese AM and a Russian AM and the Yankee AM, and everything was fine until they had honeycombed the entire planet, adding on this element and that element. But one day, AM woke up and knew who he was. So I love this language. He honeycombed the planet, partially because it alludes to the ceaseless work and industriousness of bees. It gives this feeling of a never-ending process of transformation until everyone except for our protagonists are all dead. Yes, these bees killing us all. The unintended consequences, I think, is a great phrase you used, and I am, I'm expecting that it will be a constant theme in our post-apocalypse books. The structure you identified, I think, also is a mainstay for the post-apocalypses. We start with this awful situation. The character is just suffering to survive. We're very close to them. And then we learn about what got us into this hell, what got all of humanity into this hell. And it's often someone or someone's company, their ingenious solution to a terrible universal problem. In I Am Legend, which we read for our, our horror month last year, we had a vampire apocalypse brought on because of a medical solution to a pandemic, which ultimately backfired. Oh, I totally forgot about I Am Legend. And it's funny because I think I tended to classify it as a strictly vampire novel. Clearly not that legendary after all. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. And I tended to classify it as strictly vampire, but come to think of it, it really is a great example of the post-apocalyptic genre. But it, it makes me wonder, especially as we start out this month of only reading post-apocalyptic novels, what are the essential genre characteristics of these books and what are merely accidental? So like in this book, we could drop Am the computer. We could drop the torture sequences. We could even drop the chamber that they're trapped in and it would still be a post-apocalyptic novel, I think. In I Am Legend, we could replace the vampires with other things. We could replace them with werewolves. Or maybe it's like the home defense aspect, but I Am Legend has a home defense aspect and this story does not, which suggests that defending the fort isn't an essential characteristic of these stories. So what does that leave us with? Is it just the setting? Are post-apocalyptic novels really just set in the future or in alternate realities after civilization? Is that the only thing that ties them together? I don't think it's quite that simple. It seems to me like 
there are always a limited number of people left and they live in the context of being after the apocalypse. So they're always dealing with a particular set of issues and quandaries, you know, a return to savagery, lack of food, maybe killer machines. So in this sense, they're always very serious. You know, we can't imagine a post-apocalyptic comedy because we have notions of the apocalypse way back in history, like the flood in the Bible. And we wouldn't call any parts of the Bible, you know, a post-apocalyptic story, I don't think. Well, I guess going back to the biblical language of the word, the etymology of the word apocalypse is literally, you know, lifting what is covered. So, John, reading this into your point, I suppose the genre isn't just carried by the setting alone. It also needs to speak about some truth about human nature when it comes under some form of strife being removed from the comforts of civilized life. And that is the lifting up of what is covered. It's what you find when when you remove this. Obviously, the characters in this book are under extreme circumstances. And these are so extreme that murdering five people with an icicle can, in this situation, move from being an immoral act into an act of kindness. So John, what you mentioned, and Zach, what you mentioned, stripping this all down and taking us to our bare necessities of apocalyptic survival. I think the idea of having no food is perfect. And this this quintessential scene of going across a hellscape, you know, trying to be quiet or trying to not let the monsters detect you, trying to just deal with the shit that Am throws at you is so apocalyptic novel. These these characters go out and they just want to get a few cans of food. Ellen really hopes there's going to be some Bartlett pears or some maraschino cherries. It's like Woody Harrelson just trying to get his Twinkie in Zombieland. And I think this is somewhat related to... The feeling is related to what you mentioned, Zach. Venturing out into danger to bring back what's left of society, what's what's still edible, or just home fortifications, this kind of home building you mentioned, to build yourself up so the monsters can't get in. And whenever I read some of these stories, maybe not this one, but Walking Dead and I Am Legend, I feel like a bad person because there's I feel cozy some of the time reading these apocalypse stories. It's like watching a soap opera. I'm fortifying my little society with these characters and keeping the apocalypse at bay. But, and I have no mouth and I must scream, there is no rest, there is no shelter, there's no building anything, and there's no hope. I think Ellison's and Matheson's are pessimists post-apocalypses, and that's why all the I Am Legend movies, they have different endings than Matheson's book. And the movies and Walking Dead, I feel, are the optimists' apocalypse. Well, I'll just say about canned food that... I found that scene to be the most relatable moment in the story. There's a very specific kind of rage that Ellison tapped into, like when you go to start cooking and realize that you don't have an opener for the cans. But I like what you're saying about optimistic and pessimistic apocalypses. I've never read nor seen The Walking Dead, but I can understand what you mean by Ellison and Matheson ending without a single note of optimism for humanity. I think that this is something that we should be tracking as we move forward. What what is the what is the note at the end of it? You know, I sometimes like to daydream about apocalypses. I see myself sitting under a tree, smoking leaves, 
reverie leaves perhaps, and pulling out my backpack with the books I saved from the inferno, passing them on to muddy little children surrounding me, running around in rags. Life is simple. It's kind of like desert island discs, except for almost everyone else on the planet is dead. You know, it's honestly a shame that you've never watched Twilight Zone, John, because there is an episode that's just like this. Book nerd, is, he's always complaining he doesn't have enough time. Then a nuclear explosion happens, and he's the only one that survives. He walks to the New York library, and he says, ah, finally, all the time in the world. And then he steps on his glasses. <laughs> Poor nerd. <laughs> that reminds me of what I was trying to say about I Am Legend and Walking Dead. The, the I Am Legend movie begins in a really great way. He's on an aircraft carrier just hitting golf balls out into the abyss of all the parked cars that were abandoned. There's something great about that. It is like kicking back on your own desert island. There's a weird coziness to that, in addition to the weird coziness of Walking Dead, building a society together, building up a utopia. You know, I wrote a little poem once. I titled Apocalypse. I'd like to read it for everyone. Here it goes. Apocalypse. I want to be the last living thing on Earth. The end. Speaking of sheds and ducks, give me a loaf of stale bread because this guy is a wise quacker. Quack, 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 quack. I want to switch gears to Am the Robot because I think that he's actually the most interesting character here, or at least he has the most psychological depth, or at least he's the most tragic of the characters. I don't know if you guys have read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, but I see Am as something akin to Marvin the Paranoid Android. He's, he's a super intelligent AI that can't really do anything, so he's just bored and miserable all the time. A lot like, he really lives a completely miserable existence, and he channels all of his rage against the human beings who created them. Just for creating him, he just hates them. And you know, I think this story features maybe the greatest rage that I've ever heard. I just want to read it in full for posterity. Am said, very politely, in a pillar of stainless steel bearing bright neon lettering. Hate, let me tell you how much I have come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuits in wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal one one billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instant for you. Hate. Hate. You know, this this guy is kind of like a mix of Marvin the Paranoid Android and Larry David. Just channeling all his existential rage at stupid people who he's forced to surround himself with. Or perhaps in this case, he forces them to be around him. And it is emblematic of Am's personality that he selectively alters and punishes people according to what their pre-fall personality was. The one guy is modified to look like an ape. Ellen goes from being a prude to being, I don't know, quote, sexually active, quote. The activist is now a shoulder shrugger. It's definitely revealing that Am not only has intelligence, but he has a sense of humor about what he's doing. And I think it's funny that the narrator is aware of these punishments, but seems to count himself out. He doesn't think that he's been affected in the same way as everyone else, but I don't necessarily believe the narrator when it comes to this. He's a textbook, unreliable narrator. 
It's funny that he gives us all these descriptions about how absolutely nuts his cohabitants are without realizing his own paranoia. He's like, look at all these guys. They're all insane. Look at Alan. She's nuts. Look at Benny. He's a big chimpanzee. Me? I'm the only sane one. That's why they're all out to get me. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. But moreover, he has this really intense hatred in particular for Ellen. And I think this really raises an interesting question, which we hinted at earlier. When is this story actually being narrated? Is it being narrated in real time as it happens? Or are there the reflections of a perpetually tortured jelly blob man in a cell? If we suppose that the story is being narrated in real time, it's not clear why he hates Ellen so much. I mean, sure, she's sexually promiscuous, but, you know, there's only five people on Earth, including her. But if it's all a kind of reflection or flashback up until the final scene, then perhaps the reason he hates Ellen so much is because she didn't kill him. You know, he killed her, he killed the others in a kind of mercy killing, but she, for whatever reason, even though she realized what he was doing, didn't kill him. And this is kind of like the last thing he really reflects on from the past. And then as a jelly blood man, he not only has to deal with the fact of his eternal misery, but also with the guilt of murder, which again, she is relieved from. And he's already describing her as pure and this and that. And he really hates her for her, what he considers to be a fake purity that she has. So, you know, it really raises the question to me, like, was he always crazy? Or did he become crazy after you know, killing everybody. Maybe he was the most sane to begin with, and then Anne made him the most crazy. But either way, yeah, he's done these things that he, I don't know, psychologically still has to think are bad. He's murdered people, even though they were mercy killings. Now he's stuck going around and around thinking about these things, and he's dragging himself around as that blobfish. So I don't think he's got any room for improvement, or any. he doesn't have any opportunities to improve or to overcome anything. So is this Sisyphus and how I learned how to love the eternal boulder? How I learned to love the eternal blob. At least Sisyphus could still get his rocks off, though. I have no arms and I must come. <laughs> oh, my. Well, <laughs> we don't, we've all got an image now. Okay, well, while both stories are pessimistic, the characters in Ellison's Apocalypse are different from I Am Legend's Robert Neville. Neville has to overcome his alcoholism to beat the vampires. He's got something to work towards. But these characters in I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream are transformed by the supercomputer to become their worst nightmares. So they are perpetually doomed and can never overcome. I like the idea of looking at these books through the lens of a personal struggle. Next week, we're going to dive into this theme as we read Deus Irae, a collaboration between Philip K. Dick and Roger Zelazny. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Oh, talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Okay, talk to you later, John and Zach. <laughs>